You're listening to the Conversations with Kids Peace podcast. Advice, information, and inspiration from experts at the leading provider of mental and behavioral health services for children, adults, and those who love them. Now, here's your host. Hello, and welcome to our podcast series, Conversations with Kids Peace. I'm Bob Martin. If I asked you, what's the biggest single barrier to providing effective mental and behavioral health care to those in need of it in America, you might say cost or the lack of a variety of services or geography, as in access in rural areas versus urban areas, or a national shortage of qualified physicians, therapists, and care workers. All of those are good answers, but I'd argue there's a much more far-reaching issue that actually contributes to all those factors and more. It's the stigma that our society traditionally attaches to the issue of mental health. And our discussion today is about combating that stigma. To do that, we're delighted to have with us a great friend of Kids Peace. Michael Schlossberg is a blogger, a published author, a social media expert, and a speaker and advocate for greater access to mental health care based on his own life experiences. And somehow, with all that going on, he also (laughs) manages to represent the 132nd District in the Pennsylvania State House of Representatives. Mike Slosberg, welcome to the Conversations Podcast. Thanks for having me, Bob. This is fun. Oh, it's great to have you. And I want to start first uh, for to, to begin with, uh, talk about your background. Uh, you have been tremendously candid in a public way about dealing with mental health issues, which started when you had to face your depression when you were in college. Can you describe that experience for our listeners? Yeah. I, like many people who who have suffered from depression or anxiety grew up as a kid that was a little tightly wound and too emotional, so to speak. Um, it always, I guess it's easy to say in retrospect, but it always kind of felt like there was something a little bit wrong. Uh, for me, and like many people who suffer from depression, my mental health issues really exploded when I got to college, first few weeks of college. Uh, I was unmoored from everything I'd ever known, my family, my friends, my home, all gone, and was overwhelmed by the experience and just completely I could not get myself into a groove at college. I got very, very depressed. Um, And more so than just, oh, I'm sad or, oh, this is hard. Like, oh, I don't want to get out of bed. I don't want to go to class. I just want to sit down and cry. I think that's a really important point that people don't understand. A lot of folks who are not familiar with this, that you say depression, they're like, oh, I have bad days. I'm blue. It's not that at all. Depression is when you lose the ability to function. Um, And that depression is also much more than sadness. It it can involve emotional numbness, anxiety, loss, uh, complete loss of appetite, loss of sleep, loss of tasks that you used to be able to do with no problem. Um, It it gets clinical in my mind when you lose the ability to function. That's where that's when you cross the line from being down to, wow, everything is terrible. And it's over an extended period of time, at least two weeks, clinically speaking. And that's that was definitely the case for me when I first got to school. And from there, you know, was lucky, was able to use Muhlenberg's, I was a Muhlenberg College alumni, used Muhlenberg's Counseling Center. That helped, but not enough. I went on medication and been on that all my life. Now, when when you realized there was something wrong mm-hmm. and that you, you, uh, you made this effort, but did you feel held back or restrained yeah. in your own mind? No, with a but. The but but is that Muhlenberg, to its credit, and its first year seminars, really the school really went out of its way to say the counseling center is here if you need it, and don't be ashamed. They really made an active effort to sort of fight down that stigma that keeps you out of it. And I remember thinking at the time, I wonder why I never thought about seeing a therapist at home. And in retrospect, probably because I was too afraid of what that would mean, that it would mean that there was something wrong. Um, And of course, there was something wrong, but that's not a bad thing. (laughs) Well, but you, you would have to 
talk to your family, yep. talk to your friends, talk to your, your school yeah. folks and everything. And like you said, in a in almost a perverse way, it may have been better to not have those connections in place Absolutely. to get you to where you needed to be. Absolutely. And especially, I mean, from a family perspective, I wasn't worried, but I, I think it was more of the self-stigma. I think at the time before I got to school, I was more, this will mean I'm crazy. Well, yeah, but that's okay. And crazy is not a bad thing. We're all nuts. You just be smart enough to deal with it. Um, and that's kind of where, that's the point that I hit at school. And I'm glad that I did that. And, you know, so for me, I've been on medication all my life in and out of therapy on an as needed basis, but I have, I feel like the form of depression, not so much with the anxiety, but the form of depression that I have is chronic and in some form or fashion, probably going to be with me all my life, combination of genetics and life circumstances. That's the way it is. And I feel like as long as you manage that, there's nothing to there's nothing to be embarrassed about or ashamed about. And I came to the conclusion that that's a conversation that I could use, that we need to have, that I need to use to have. And I think you you, were, you said something really interesting there, which was self-stigma, mm-hmm. that sometimes the enemy is the one between your ears. Yep. Like you can't get to In that In so many point. ways, but yes. But you, you made, uh, uh, you know, and I, I don't want to embarrass you by saying this, but you made what I consider to be an extraordinary jump. You, you went from dealing with this, living with this, as a person with depression within your own life, to writing and blogging about the issue publicly. Mm-hmm. Why did you decide to do that? Because it had to happen. Um, and it, it, the the actual impetus, the snap decision, because that's kind of what it was, was Robin Williams' suicide. Um, and specifically, I always talk about this, specifically a Facebook status. It was the, uh, so Robin Williams killed himself. And like many people with depression, I really took that one hard because you think if a guy is funny with all the money that he, he had, everything he could want. Absolute success. Right. You know, all the money in the world. If he killed himself, what's to say it's not going to be me one day. So I was putzing through Facebook that day and everyone's Facebook status was so sad. You know, Robin Williams. And there was some idiot that I was friends with. Couldn't tell you who he was because I hit the defriend button on the spot. (laughs) But had something to the effect of so sad Robin Williams killed himself. He just needed more faith in Jesus. And I was like, that's, you're an idiot. That's not how this works at all. This isn't faith. You can't pray depression away. You can't pray away a chronic illness. Ironically, prayer and religion can help, but you can't expect something as severe as depression to disappear. And I was pissed off and I fired out an angry Facebook status and, you know, and I went to bed thinking about it. And I remember turning to my wife that night and saying, maybe, maybe I need to say something publicly. She said, maybe you do. I woke up the next day and I'm still pissed off. And at five in the morning, wrote this op-ed um, that, but where I came out, so to speak, with my own depression, talking about what depression is, how it affects people and how nobody should be embarrassed or ashamed about it. And sent it to my staff. They massaged my angry words into something a little bit more coherent. Your, 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 your brilliant prose at five o'clock in the yeah, morning. <laughs> it basically worked, but they were like, all right, let's, let's just tweak this a little bit. Sent it to the morning call. They called me a couple hours later. Like, we love it. We're gonna publish it later today. It'll be in the paper tomorrow. It's like, great, that's really great. I'm gonna panic now, because it hadn't quite, and then I was so filled with righteous anger. I was like, this is gonna be great. And then when the reality hit, I went, oh, God, what did I do? So called my friends, were like, calm down. No, 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 you got this. This is good. This is very good. And uh, my best friend, Peter Schweier, who now serves with me in the legislature, said, this is going to change your career in a way that you didn't quite anticipate. I said, how do you mean? He said, you're about to become a mental health guy. And he was right. And the op-ed was greeted. Um, I underestimated how much people wanted to hear somebody say that. And not me, because I wasn't the only one, even locally at the time, that said that he had Express Times editors, small business owners come out and say me too. 
And all of that has had the effect of combating stigma and making depression more personable. Because if you could see people who seem happy from the outside but still feel that pain internally, you can know that it if it's you, it's okay. You can still function and be successful and talk about it. And, and really, you're taking down the level of mysteriousness that mm-hmm. goes to it. To your point about when, yep. you, when you hear, um, in the past year, we've seen very successful folks, sadly, die for, as a result of suicide. Yep. Anthony Bourdain, mm-hmm. Kate, Kate Spade. Spade yeah. And you say, people always do say that. How, how could they be that unhappy? Mm-hmm. And when you say, this is the process, this is what people are going through, these are some of the <clears throat> causes, all those things. Yep. Um, it, it basically, in some ways, stigma and mystery come at the same yes. the same frequency kind of thing. And we have to humanize depression. We know that one in five Americans actively suffer from some sort of depression, but only 30 to 40% are going to seek treatment. You listed a million of the reasons why, but stigma is a huge part of it. And stigma especially hits people who don't know better about depression or, unfortunately, people who culturally are more attuned to say, I can get rid of this on my own. And that's a lot of times that's men and a lot of times that's minority communities. And together, we need to be better about how we talk about depression. In your opinion, from where you stand, what's the biggest source of the negative stigma around mental health treatment? Hmm. I think we've internalized. I'll go back to what I just said about men in particular, actually. We've internalized it to mean I'm weak or I'm broken. We think that if we're sad for no reason, there must be something wrong with us. And man up, tough it out, be a man. That's not, that's that's stupid. You you don't man your way through a broken leg. You can't man your way through depression. I mean, take out out mental health, put in the word diabetes, to put in the word pediatric cancer. You would never say... Just tough it out. Yeah. It'll be better tomorrow. You know, get up and do something. Yep. And that's uh, when I have the conversation. So part of fun part of my job is I talk with kids a lot. And when I have the conversation about who I am and what I do, I always bring this up. I go out of my way. And the exact example that I use when I'm talking with fifth graders is, okay, so if you're skateboarding and you break your arm, what do you do? And they're like, well, you call 911, go to a doctor, get help. It's like, right, there you go. And then I kind of transition to mental health from there. Well, that's, you know, kids are... Kids are way more smarter than us There's adults. no question. <laughs> That's a great intro to something I want to talk about now. Uh, we mentioned in your intro that you are a published author. Mm-hmm. Tell us about your latest venture, the young adult novel Redemption. What's going so, on? I wrote a book called Redemption, and it is, it, on the surface, it sounds like a kind of sci-fi dystopian book. It's about 20 kids who wake up on board a spaceship and have to save the world. Um, the, the hook of it, and the part that makes it different, the mental health hook, is that the main character, who's the captain of the ship, suffers from depression and anxiety issues. And I, the book, I think, is interesting regardless of that aspect. But it's particularly interesting there because of the purpose of the book is to try to demystify and explain what depression is, what an anxiety attack feels like, what it feels like to be so hopeless you can't get out of bed despite the responsibilities in front of you. I mean, there is also a pretty baseball bat glaringly obvious metaphor there that depression can feel like the weight of the world is on your shoulders. And in the case of the main character, Ash, it really is on his shoulders. But I do want to also show that you can live through depression, that if you tackle it, you can be successful and that you can do anything, including maybe save the world. Does fiction give you some opportunity to do that better than blogging or nonfiction? Yeah, definitely better than nonfiction because it's a good hook. 
I think somebody reading this, whether or not they know what depression and anxiety is like or not, can read it and get a better understanding and also can kind of destigmatize it a little bit. One of the, the nicest compliment I get about the book is when someone who knows what it's like says to me, oh man, you describe that anxiety attack perfectly. It's like, all right, good. So that means that somebody who doesn't know what it's like can get a better idea of what anxiety is and how you can be helpful maybe to somebody who does suffer. And that's what you're looking to try to get out yep. of the, you know, I mean, obviously you're an author, you'd like people to feel like they're entertained. Yeah. It's been a good read. Oh yeah. But what you want them to walk away from is that understanding and yeah. that that insight. I, wa- I want the issue destigmatized a little bit. And that's why I think, and I hope the book is, has some level of importance. I want people to know what it's like and I want them to understand they can live and be happy with it. If there were one thing that you feel that we could do in in, in any field, the, the most effective thing we could do to combat stigma of mental health treatment, what would that be? Normal people have to put a public face on it. Um, me talking about it, any celebrity talking about it, and I use myself as a celebrity in not the I'm so important sense, but in that I have some public renown, so to speak, infamy <laughs> uh, as, a, as a legislator. That's good and it's important, but people have a harder time relating to celebrities. Normal people have to, in everyday conversations, talk about their own experiences with mental illness, depression, anxiety, addiction, whatever. The most important way we can destigmatize the issue is by having a normal human being talk about mental illness the same way they would talk about a physical ailment. That is how you make it truly relatable and that's how you destigmatize the issue. Are there any public policy uh, initiatives you're looking at? Again, to remind folks, you are a member of the Pennsylvania State House of Representatives and obviously been very active in this. Is there anything that you see either there or in Mm -hmm. the general governmental realm that uh, is going is trying to attack this issue from a stigma perspective that government can help with funding and creating programs but that's got to come from some of the advocacy groups things like NAMI and the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention uh, this year if we're talking about mental health what I'm looking to really tackle is um, mental health parity as well as trying to come up with programs and mentorships for first responders we know that there are vulnerable communities more likely to suffer from mental illness and suicide first responders being really high up there among them. So we're, I'm working with some Republicans right now to try to develop legislation that would make it easier for first responders to get the help that they need, create uh, mentorship programs, hotlines that they could call, again, destigmatize the issue. We were just talking about, you know, that kind of macho attitude. Mm-hmm. And my God, do first responders have it? Well, and they'll be the first to admit it. We've actually, um, we actually have done a um, couple podcasts talking about this issue. Yep. And one of the things you get from there, and I, and I thought it was really interesting how you said that about the character in your book, feeling that the weight of the world is on your shoulder, I'm sure folks that are in that situation, uh, and certainly the first responders, are always saying, I'm okay, take care of them. Yeah, I'm okay, absolutely. you know, my men need your help, or whatever it is. Yep. And we, we're trying to get to the point of going, yeah, we're not ready to accept that you're okay. You yeah. know, we, you, we need to look at this. And and, and the good news there is there's an increased recognition that they need to deal with it. Um, and they, they know that, but we in government have to help give them the tools they need so they can do that. Well, we ask each of our guests to end their interviews mm-hmm. on a life hack. Yep. This can be a piece of advice. Yep. Uh, you know, some a tip on how to do something around the house better that you found and everything. So, Mike, what's your life hack? My today? life hack, especially for people who are depressed and have a hard time getting out of bed. 
And the answer is do something little. Do something little that will just get you going. It might be as simple as going to the bathroom and brushing your teeth. It might be making your bed or it might be doing some sort of activity that is completely engaging, like going to the gym. To anybody who is depressed, the best thing I could say is just do one little thing and see where that takes you. Related to that, I yesterday spent about four hours baking a cake. It was terrible, but it's the first time <laughs> I've ever tried to bake. Not terrible, it just wasn't as good as I wanted it to be. But man, I It was terrible four... to the last bite is what you're saying. Yes, I, <laughs> no, no, it was it was red velvet cake and it was, that the cake was good. I messed up the, I messed up the frosting six ways from Sunday, but that's fine. Just do something that will completely gain your attention. If you can't do that, do something little and go from there. Awesome. Michael Schlossberg is a blogger, author, mental health advocate, and a member of the Pennsylvania State House of Representatives. Mike, thank you for coming and joining thank us. Thank you for having me, we Bob. We would love to have you come back sometime. Anytime. All right. We're very pleased now to have with us the Chief Medical Officer of Kids Beast, Dr. Matthew Koval. He is board certified in child and adolescent psychiatry and has served as a practitioner and a medical school professional in the field, uh, excuse me, professor in the field for many years. In his current role, he directs the medical activities related to the services provided across the Kids Peace organization. Dr. Koval, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. It's great to be here. It's great to have you. Uh, let's get started right off the bat. In your opinion, what's the biggest source of the negative stigma surrounding mental health treatment? Well, I would guess it's really just the lack of understanding. Uh, when you're dealing with mental illness as opposed to sort of a physical illness, there's sort of nebulous things that people can't really put their finger on, right? So for example, if you have a strep throat, you know that your throat is sore, a doctor's going to put a swab in your throat, they're going to see bacteria in there, they're going to put you on an antibiotic, and it's very sort of cut and dry, A, B, C, D, this is what's going to happen. Whereas with mental illness uh, or emotional or behavioral problems, it's not there often isn't, uh, there certainly isn't a bacteria or a virus that causes those things. And it's usually multifactorial, right? It could be a person's support system. It could be a stressor in their life. It could be a tragedy. It could be the loss of a loved one. It could be work. It could be partly their own genetics because depression runs in their family. So, And isn't it the case, too, that there's behaviors and that a layman wouldn't necessarily uh, associate with uh, a mental health condition and there I don't know why I'm irritable and then right well, it's because you might right. be clinically depressed right or insomnia for example gee I just can't sleep when when they might think it's because of their bed or their pillow or, or whatever or their sheets when really it's because they've um, been suffering with depression or anxiety so I think it's really this issue of having a fuller understanding of what's going on with folks when they have mental illness and because it's something that's more difficult to understand and wrap your head around then I think this idea comes up that, well, then it's something you should have been able to handle on your own. For example, gee, if you just had a stiff upper lip or if you were a, if you were a better person, somehow these things wouldn't happen to you. And, and really what we know now and what we've learned over the years is that's simply not the case. Again, I alluded earlier to genetics. I mean, we know now that depression runs in families, anxiety runs in families. If, if you had a parent who was depressed, you're twice as likely as the general population to have depression in your lifetime. If both of your parents were clinically depressed, you're four times more likely to have depression in your lifetime. Wow. That, that, that's a, a, just a sort of a shocking kind of thing that you would not necessarily know. And, of course, if you're talking about stigma, the other generations may have actually had even more of an impetus not to get diagnosed, not to seek treatment. Yes. You wouldn't know until you went back and said, oh, boy, now I realize this is – this may be a real contributor. I didn't realize it when I was growing up or right now, but now that I know what's going on with my own head, wow, that's, that's where that was. 
now, okay, so so stigma is is a barrier to people seeking help. What are some of the clinical ramifications of this reluctance to get help? What, what, what does it mean in terms of the success of treatment for these conditions? Well, the, the very main thing off the bat is that the person simply won't get help at all. So they'll continue to struggle in silence or, the, again, they'll, contribute, they'll continue to uh, attribute their sleep problems to their bed or their pillow rather than what might really be going on underneath um, or marital problems or, or problems with your son or daughter, all those kinds of issues uh, you attribute to something else. And so the, the main thing is, is that um, people don't seek treatment. So it's been estimated that like in a normal primary care office where many people go to just get their regular health care needs, that one in three of those folks have a diagnosable mental illness. Could be something like mild anxiety or it could be something far more severe. But out of those one in three, only about half of those get the treatment that they need. Part of that is because of the stigma. They don't want to go and get that treatment. Part of it is, to be honest, that sometimes the primary care docs are too busy kind of stamping out other fires, the high blood pressure, the diabetes, et cetera, that they're not attuned to those issues to even be able to make that referral. And it, it, it becomes a uh, uh, an issue where you're like, what else could they have done there in front of a medical professional, preferably or, or probably one that they that they trust, and they're not bringing this up, or the professional isn't bringing it up? But what right. is that? That that has a lot to say, I think, for people in their minds of thinking about: Do I really want to seek this kind of right. treatment? Right. Um, I, I would say to the primary care folks out there um, that they should really be mindful of what we call the the doorknob comment. And some people aren't familiar with what that is, but what that means is the doc's at the door, the, the appointment's finished, and then the, the patient says, hey, I, I wanted to say one more thing because they've been waiting the whole time and trying to get up their courage to say that this one other issue. And a lot of times, unfortunately, the doctors are busy and they might be like, well, we'll get you next time and they're out the door. But if the docs would pay attention, they might hear that person say, you know, I've, I've really been having trouble sleeping or I've been so anxious at work, I, I can't even think straight or, or I'm having so much problems with my wife or my husband. And those are the things really the doc should stay at the door and really should listen to because they may get a wealth of information. I think probably everybody has a story in their lives where they're, they're like, that happened to me in, in various things. Now, does the stigma issue, the impact of it, does that have an impact once treatment is underway? Do you still see a reluctance? What, what, what's been your experience? I think that can still happen. But for the most part, um, it's really the, the provider and, and me as a psychiatrist. It's my role. And part one of the first things I want to do is establish a rapport with that client, right? I want them to know that they're in a safe place, that they can talk about the issues that are really bothering them, that I'm not going to judge them, that I'm not, I'm not going to uh, m make snap judgments about their life or their lifestyle. Um, and when you establish that rapport, then I think you start to see that reluctance and that resistance kind of melt away. Um, and, and I think that's, again, the, the impetus of that is on the provider, right? Because the person's coming in with their preconceived notions. What, what our job is to say, your preconceived notions really aren't what this is all about. What this is about is you and I joining together to try to come to a resolution to the things that are bothering you. A level of trust. Exactly. I, I, okay, now I understand. You, as you just said, you won't be judging me. You won't be saying, oh, there's something, you know, this, this, this person is not a good person. Together, you can find a way to address these issues. And that's really the, I would say, that's kind of the definition of 
the uh, the beneficial relationship you should have with your right. with your medical professional. Right. I, I don't know how many times I've had an experience where where I've sat with folks who are talking about something tragic or, or very painful in their lives, and and you know. We're sort of taught, and I'll say especially as men, but but even 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 women and and, and other folks and children will have an experience where, gee, I can't cry, I can't show my emotion. That's not that's not what I should do, and and it's really remarkable when you say to somebody, you know, it really feels like that. It seems to me like that really makes you want to cry, or that's really so painful for you, and you're sort of giving them permission to have those mm-hmm. feelings. Mm-hmm. And and what I found is when once you've given them the permission, the person realizes it's a safe place. Again, I'm not going to judge you, and maybe some tears flow, or maybe other emotions come out. And invariably, the person will say to me afterwards, "I'm so glad that we had that discussion. I'm, <laughs> right. I'm so glad you 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 didn't just stop where we were." you know, or push a tissue box in front of me and kind of be like, dry it up. Right. But you're saying it's okay. That's that's what yeah. we're here for. We're here to examine those emotions and try to figure out what we can learn from them. Wow. Again, one of those experiences I think everybody's had in there. Mm-hmm. Or with a family member or friend, you've had those Absolutely. experiences. Absolutely. Right. Where it's, a, it, you know, you're, you're there to listen. You're there to give them permission to feel that and to, to express it. Exactly. Now, um, we were talking before we went on about, you know, one of the issues that we face in this field um, is a a shortage of practitioners, Mm -hmm. psychiatrists, therapists, uh, mental health workers. And I I was wondering if there was an impact of stigma on that. But you're saying not really. Yeah, I think it probably was there in the past. And I remember when I was in medical school um, and I started getting the idea that psychiatry was kind of the right fit for me. And I would tell friends or, or family members and they would say, well, you know, Matt, you'd be better as a real doctor. And and I was like, well, I think I am going to be a real doctor. Um, so, so there was that issue. But I really think that that has changed a lot. I mean, and, I, and I've worked in, in academic medicine for a long time before I joined Kids Peace. And I think what we're seeing is students who find themselves interested in that area or resident doctors, they, they, they are much more willing to go into that area. And they've also been able to garner the respect of their colleagues because as psychiatry has become more of a, a science, just like other areas of medicine, where we do have definitive medications and causes and treatments and evidence-based treatments, that has brought us more into the fold. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and And people are recognizing that that's you know a, a, a place where they can deliver that they, they can have a difference they can make a difference as absolutely they with, with other other disciplines I guess. right from a medical perspective uh, how can doctors and their therapeutic colleagues better address the issue of stigma in your opinion well, I think the main thing is, 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 and this would go to family members or docs or nurses or anyone who's working with folks who need this kind of help in their lives. They have to normalize it. This is not an abnormal thing. One in eight people will get a depression in their lifetime. It's a very common illness. Um, we used to think that depression was kind of a one and done thing, right? You'd have an episode of depression and then maybe you get treated or even it just over time goes away and that's it. But we know now that depression is not unlike hypertension or diabetes. These are chronic illnesses that can sometimes have a relapsing, remitting course. And that is that is the nature of that illness. So the more that even a non-psychiatrist or a non-mental health professional can normalize for their clients that going to see the psychiatrist is no different than if you had cancer, you would go to see the oncologist. Or if you had uh, required a surgery, you'd go see a 
surgeon. This is really no different than that. And there are people who are specifically trained to deal with these issues. And um, you owe it to yourself to see the expert in that field rather than to try to, number one, handle it on your own or even have a primary care doc who, by the way, do more psychiatry than psychiatrists mm -hmm. because they <laughs> see so many more people than we do. Um, you, you really owe it to yourself to see the expert in the field. And there's just a, a great way, as you're saying there, of trying to beat back sort of twin issues here. One is the mystery. I don't know what's going on. And two is, uh, well, whatever's going on reflects badly on me. I don't want to talk about right. that. When you normalize it, you say it's not that mysterious. Right. Um, and it's not something it's, – it should not have shame attached to it. Right. Okay. Right. We, uh, we end each of our interviews with uh, what is becoming, I guess, sort of the infamous life hack, um, piece of advice, maybe a favorite saying, tip on how to do something around the house. So, uh, Dr. Kobo, what's your life hack today? Well, um, you, you gave me a heads up that I might need to, to, to think about this, and so, so I did. And I know one of the things that I've thought of throughout my career, and I've taught to medical students and residents when I was more in the academic world, and, and that has to do with how physicians approach uh, life and clients. And I think it actually goes beyond being a doctor and it, and it can apply to real life. And I'll explain what I mean. If you watch a medical show on television, it seems like the doctors are all in the nurses. They're always doing something, right? Like, don't just sit there, do something. You know, you're saving a life, you're, you're intervening, you're, you're, you're putting in a, a, a line or you're, you're giving someone a shot or you're doing something. But sometimes in psychiatry and in life in general, I feel like it's don't do something, just sit there. Sometimes we learn a lot more by listening, observing, watching, and then once we've gathered the information we need, then we can be of more help to that person. So even when it comes to the stigma, if somebody has an idea that they don't want to go see a specialist in mental health because it means they're a bad person, I'm not really going to know that and I'm not going to know how it affects them personally unless I sit there long enough for them to tell me what their resistance is. And so one of the things I was taught way back in residency is you always go after the resistance, right? So if somebody says to me, well, I don't want to see a therapist then, then um, I would say, well, what is it about seeing the therapist that, that causes you to, to have, re, you know, reluctance? Because then they're going to tell me, right? If I ask them, they should tell me. So if they say, well, I don't know, I don't, I don't like what people will think, or they're just going to tell me I'm a bad person, well, then I can address that issue directly. But I shouldn't assume what their issue is. I should sit back long enough for them to tell me what their issue is. I think that's great advice uh, for life in general, and but certainly for medical practitioners. Right. Dr. Matthew Koval serves as Chief Medical Officer for the Kids Peace Organization. Thank you for joining us today. It's always a pleasure. We hope Thank you come you. back. I will. Okay. Our thanks once again to State Representative Mike Schlossberg and Dr. Matthew Koval for being on the podcast. If you have a comment on our conversation or a suggestion on a topic to discuss in future podcasts, please let us know. Go to kidspeace.org, click on the Contact Us tab at the top of the page, and share your thoughts with us. Of course, if you found this discussion of value, we ask you, please share our podcast series with your friends and contacts on social media. The Conversations with Kids Peace podcast is produced by Robbie Allred. I'm Bob Martin. Thanks for joining us, and we look forward to having you join us again for more Conversations with Kids Peace. Take care. If you have comments, questions, or suggestions about our Conversations podcast, we'd love to hear from you. Go to www.kidspeace.org to learn more about the series and share your thoughts.